Let's read God's Word together. Paul the Apostle writing, Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God chose no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Lord, this is your holy and inspired word. And so help us now as we look at it, not just to understand it, but to see how, how does it apply to us? How does it apply to my life here and now? How is your word aiming to get work done in my life now? Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Incline our hearts now to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Satisfy our hearts right now with your steadfast love that we may be glad and rejoice today in your truth and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. On May 12, 1789, William Wilberforce gave his first speech to the British Parliament calling for the abolition of the slave trade. And the bill that he introduced that day to the House of Commons failed miserably. And that would be his experience for 18 long and hard years. When Wilberforce thought of the magnitude of this issue, the issue of slavery in his day, when he thought about his own personal weakness, when he thought about the opposition that he faced, he said that he was terrified. But he could not give up. He couldn't quit. He said, I take courage. I determine to forget all my fears. 
I march forward with full assurance that my cause will prevail. I can, justi- I can justify and defend with clarity every point that I raise, and I am committed to this one goal. I will not stop until the slave trade is totally abolished. You see, William Wilberforce knew what was at stake. He knew the lives that were in danger. He knew the evil of slavery and racism that needed to be confronted. And so he stood firm. He stood his ground because he wanted men and women, no matter what their race or their background or their socioeconomic standard, he wanted all men and women and children to be free. Friends, that's what Paul is doing right here. Paul in the book of Galatians sees the dire need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preserved because he knows what's at stake. He knows the lives of people that he loves are at stake and he's desperate to know that these men and women have the freedom that's offered in Christ alone. And so that's why he writes this book. And his main pastoral burden, if you want to call it that, his main concern, he's going to return to it over and over and over again. Why he's so astonished is that the people that he loves, is, they're in danger of deserting Christ. They're in danger of leaving the Gospel. They're in danger of taking on another message that's only going to enslave them once again. So he's writing and appealing, and his main pastoral burden and concern is that these men and women stand firm, that they hold their ground, that they continue to maintain their faith in Jesus Christ and in what he has accomplished for them for their salvation. That's my concern for all of us right here, right now. That's what the call of this text is, is to stand firm. Hold your gospel ground. Do not shrink back from trusting in Jesus Christ alone because he is the only one in whom your soul can truly find salvation. Now Paul is doing something particularly in these opening chapters. He's defending his ministry and his message. That's what these opening chapters are. They're a defense. And so here, what he's trying to do to help us to stand firm is he's showing us specifically that the gospel has authority to do some things. Last week, we learned that the gospel is not a man's man-made gospel. Paul's gospel is from God. His ministry was given to him by God. And so he has the authority to do what he's doing. That was last week's text. This week, Paul is saying specifically that the gospel is authoritative to do two things. It authoritatively unites us, and it authoritatively corrects us. The gospel is the one message that has the ability to unite all true believers in Jesus Christ, and the gospel has authority to correct any one of us, whether we're apostle or whomever else, the gospel alone has the authority to correct us when we stray from it. That's the two things that we're going to look at 
right now. The gospel has authority to unite, and the gospel has authority to correct. All aimed at the same one goal. Paul is saying, friends, stand firm in this gospel. Do not depart from the one message that points you to the one Savior who alone can rescue you. The gospel unites us and it corrects us. Therefore, stand firm in it. Does that make sense? So first, the gospel unites us. The gospel unites us. In verses 1-10, through Paul's point is that the Jerusalem apostles... They are united with Paul in believing and preaching the same message. The apostles in Jerusalem are united with Paul in preaching and believing the same message. This is Paul's second trip now to Jerusalem. And he goes there 14 years after he becomes a Christian. And he goes there, it says in verse 2, because of a revelation. So God tells him to go to Jerusalem, and he goes. And he repeats this phrase over and over again. Did you catch it? This idea in verse 2 that he's meeting with those who seemed influential. In verse 6, he says the same thing. For those who seemed influential. In verse 9, to those who seemed to be pillars. And then he names them in verse 9, James, Cephas, who's Peter, and John. Okay, so he's trying to show the Galatians, listen, I am united with the apostles in Jerusalem in believing and proclaiming the same exact message. I don't have something different than those guys do. Now, you can understand why this is important. Just think about this for a second. If these men who had spent time with Jesus, following him, witnessing his miracles, living with him, getting to know him, seeing him die, seeing him rise again, if these men with this type of influence and authority are preaching something different than Paul, Paul's got problems on his hands. Because if anything gets out, if word gets out to anybody that he's been ministering to that these guys are preaching something different, well, they, because of their authority and their influence, Paul has got a mess to clean up now. Paul, help us to understand this. You're preaching something different than these guys are. So Paul has to be sure that he's showing the Galatians, listen, we're united in this. Not because Paul doubts what God has showed him, but practically speaking, his ministry is in jeopardy if word gets out that these apostles are preaching something than Paul. Do you, friend, want to know if you are united with the true church? Do you want to know, like, what is it that makes somebody a true Christian? What is it that unites? What's the one banner? What's the one message that unites all men and women who are truly following Jesus? It's this. That Christ died for your sins. Right, Paul says that he, Jesus, loved us and gave himself for us. So at some point in your life, you come to understand, listen, I am a sinner. 
What God has instructed us, the ways that he's called us to live, I've fallen short of that in the things that I've said, in the things that I've done, in the things that I've thought, what I have done, what I haven't done, I have fallen short of that standard, and God, by his grace, sends Jesus into the world. And Jesus lives the life that I couldn't live. And then he goes willingly to the cross and suffers there all of the wrath of God that I deserve, the punishment that I deserve, because I deserve to be held accountable to what I have and have not done before God. So Jesus substitutes himself in my place, dies the death I deserve to die, is buried, and rises again. And then he says to anybody, man, woman, child, teen, parent, whoever you are, if you right here, right now, would put your faith in him, not in anything you've done. Jesus takes all of your sin, dies in your place, rises again, and when you say, Jesus, I trust you, he gives you all of his righteousness. He gives you all of your, his obedience. And so by faith in him, we stand before God completely and totally forgiven and accepted. Never ever, you can clap, never ever to be separated from God on this basis, on the basis of what Jesus did for you. That's the gospel. That is the only message that makes you a Christian. That's the only message that unites the church of Jesus Christ from the day it was founded until right now. Are you a part of this? This is it. This is the one message that unites us. This is the message that Paul is saying. Listen, there's only one. So it's ridiculous to depart from it because this is it. This is what unites us. This is what makes us true followers of Christ. Now what threatens this? What is the issue at stake here? Because this is under attack. Right? What is it that threatens the unity that the apostles have in the gospel? It's in verse 4. Paul says these secret brothers, false brothers, have slipped in. So they're, they've snuck into this meeting where Paul is describing for the apostles the gospel he's been preaching. And these guys stand up and say, hold on, wait a second, I got something to say. Actually, Paul, you're not totally correct. Faith in Jesus is important, but you actually have to do something else in addition to that. You actually have to follow the Mosaic Law. You've got to follow the Old Testament. Namely, you have to be circumcised. Because in the Old Testament... That was crucial. Like, if you were really a part of God's family, if you're a male, you're circumcised. You're either in or you're out. And circumcision was the sign that said, I'm in the family of God. So these guys were teaching, in order to be a true Christian, you needed to be circumcised. So Paul's question is, well, do the apostles teach that? Is that what the apostles are saying? And his answer is no. And we see that in several ways. First, in verse 3, Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. Titus is a test case, right? He's a Gentile. So if Titus leaves Jerusalem a circumcised man, Paul's got problems. 
If Titus leaves Jerusalem circumcised, that means that the apostles and these false brothers are saying, listen, Jesus plus the law equals salvation. So if Titus leaves circumcised, Paul's got major problems. And Titus is praising God that the circumcision doesn't go down. He is happy about the outcome, no doubt. That's not what is true. You don't need to circumcise Titus, and the apostles are in agreement with Paul on that one. They're united in one gospel. In fact, they add nothing to Paul, he says. In fact, when they see Paul and they observe the grace of God that's on his ministry, and they compare it with Peter and the grace of God that's on his ministry, they say, this is a work of God. Paul, right here, man. Like, we are co-laborers. We are preaching the same gospel. We believe in the same Savior. You go to the Gentiles. We're going to focus on the Jews. That was what was threatening them. Church, what is it that threatens you? My guess is that it's been a long time since anybody's pressured you into circumcision. Like, when does that came up at work? But I know, because I live in the same world that you do, that there are countless lurings away from Christ and countless temptations that threaten me on a moment-by-moment basis just like they do for you. What is it that threatens to pull you away from Jesus? For them, it was the law. No one's threatening you to be circumcised. Who's threatening you, though? What is threatening you? Where are you being tempted to leave Christ because of the pressures that you're under in some form or fashion? Some of us get all twisted because we confuse salvation with sanctification. And here's what I mean by that. Salvation what some people call positional sanctification, is a moment-in-time thing. Like, I see myself as a sinner, I see you, Jesus, as the only Savior, and I put my faith and trust in you, I'm saved. I experience salvation. I experience God positionally sanctifying me in Christ. Done. A moment in time. Nothing to be improved upon. But that leads me now into a walk with Jesus in which I'm progressively sanctified. So positional sanctification, moment in time. Progressive sanctification, a process that unfolds for the rest of my life. Here's what happens in progressive sanctification. So when I'm up here, I'm feeling pretty good about my relationship with Christ. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm serving in children's ministry. I'm being the person that I think God wants me to be. But I'm not always up here. And neither are any of you. When you're down here, shoot, man, I don't know if I'm even a Christian. Like, I'm not the man that God's called me to be. I'm not the husband that God's called me. I'm not the pastor that God's called me to be. Like, I feel like my life is a mess. I don't know if I can have real assurance in my salvation, in my faith. Why? Because I'm, I'm operating before God as if my salvation is based on how well I'm doing, on my works. Can you relate to that at all? 
Do you ever relate to God and feel guilty like you can't get near to God because you're just in a really bad place right now? You're operating as if your salvation, your relationship with God is on the basis of how well or how poorly you're doing. You're out of step with the gospel. You've forgotten it. Because you're operating as if your relationship with God is on the basis of how well you're doing. That's a works-based gospel, and that's not a gospel. That gives nobody hope. That's not good news. It's a false gospel, but we, we believe it. Maybe it's not that, but there are pressures and stresses that lure you away. Now, you're dealing with some weighty things. Stuff at work, stuff in your marriage, stuff in your family, your health, your depression, whatever. And they're weighty things. Now, deep down inside, you know that no one but God can really help with that. You know that. You believe that. But your life doesn't match up with that belief. Because you and I, we start to turn, even if just for a moment, we start to turn to other things, asking them to do for us what only Jesus promises to do. So if I just have more food, or if I just have more sex, or if I just have more beer, or if I just have more entertainment, a bigger house, better career advancement, you name it. If even just for a moment, those things can make me feel better, functionally, that's the God I am serving. And whomever I serve that is whom I am a slave of. So when I turn to those things to rescue me, even for an evening, I'm saying to whatever that is, you be my Savior. And I've enslaved myself to them in the same way that the Galatians are becoming enslaved to this false gospel of circumcision. You and I do the same thing. Maybe it's satanic attack. You can't explain it, and you don't even fully understand it. But you know that some going, something's going on that's causing you to really drift in your relationship with Christ. And here's one of the ways you can know it's Satan. What you're seeking to do more and more is isolate yourself. You think you can go it alone, and no one understands what you're going through. And the problems that you know you need help with you're trying to figure them out by yourself. Telltale sign of satanic attack. That's his MO. He isolates to destroy, to devour, and to conquer. Whatever it is that's tempting you to lure you away from Christ, whether it's pressures and temptations, whether it's satanic attack, whether it's a workspace righteousness, this roller coaster ride that you're on, whatever the temptation is, friends, the solution is exactly the same. You need Christ. You need to stand firm in your conviction that Jesus alone is going to get me out of this mess. You and I need Jesus just as much right here, right now, as the first day we did when we called on his name. Like, you never get away from that. You never move beyond your need for Jesus to rescue you over and over and over and over again. You need his power and his presence in your life continually. Don't drift away from him. Stand firm in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only hope you got. He's it. And he's a sufficient savior to help you right where you are. That's good news. So Paul's saying, be careful. 
This is the Gospel that unites us. There's only one. To drift away from it is to drift away from the Savior who saved you. Don't go away from this. Stand firm in Jesus. Now what happens if you do falter? What happens when we do fail? That's where Paul turns next. The Gospel is not only authoritative to unite us, it's powerful and authoritative to correct us when we stray. That's what Paul does to Peter in verses 11 through 14. The gospel unites, the gospel corrects. Verses 11 through 14, Paul is recounting his correction of Peter. Now, what's Peter's deal? What's going on here? Peter. In Antioch, which is a bustling city in the New Testament time, all different cultures, like it's a cultural melting pot. Peter's there, and he's eating, having ham sandwiches with Gentiles. Hanging out, fellowshipping, gathering together for meals, until the Jews from Jerusalem come down to check out what he's doing. And then it says because he's afraid of them, he starts to bolt on the Gentiles. Like, I have nothing to do with them. No ham sandwiches for me, man. Like pork. I, what Peter's doing is he's presenting himself as a good Jew. I don't eat that stuff. I don't go those places. I don't defile myself with their stuff. Peter's saying, I've got faith in Jesus, but faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law is what makes me a true Christian, like a super Christian, a good Christian. It's the same issue as circumcision. Peter's doing the same thing as the false brothers were doing. He's, with his life, he's proclaiming hypocritically a gospel that he doesn't even believe. Because he's one of the guys who said to Paul, yeah, we're on, we're, on, we're on board with this. Peter knows the gospel. Peter believes the gospel. Peter preaches the gospel. But his life now is hypocritically out of line with the gospel. Now, this is so far removed from us, right? Like the idea of eating with people and being defiled by it. But think of Daniel. You remember Daniel, first chapter of Daniel, when Daniel and his buddies are in Babylon because they've been exiled. What's the first thing that Daniel and his friends commit to do? They, they will not eat what? They won't eat the king's meat because I won't defile myself with the food of the Babylonians. So just give me vegetables and water. That's it for me. I will not defile myself. Daniel's like the Jewish hero, right? This was really important for first century Jews. Like, don't eat that stuff. This was hugely important. It's not for us. But by withdrawing from the Gentiles, Peter's saying, to be a Jew, you've got to follow the law and believe in Jesus. Now, here's what I find challenging. Peter. Guys, Peter. The guy that said to Jesus, listen, I'll go to death for you, man. Like all these chumps, they might abandon you, but I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. And before the sun came up the next morning, he's hightailing it away. Denying Christ in the courtyard, right? So, okay, he recovers from that, but that should humble somebody. He gets over that. He starts to follow Jesus again. And then in this amazing experience, God reveals to him in these visions when he says to God, I'll never eat anything unclean. God says, Peter, why are you calling unclean what I've made clean? Like, there's, food isn't the issue anymore, Peter. Faith is the issue. 
If you believe in Jesus, no matter who you are, that's what makes you clean. So Peter, stop. Don't worry about going to Cornelius' house. Get down there and tell him the gospel so that Jews and Gentiles can be united in faith in Jesus. Food is no problem anymore, Peter. Peter! If anybody should know these things, it's Peter. If Peter can get out of whack with the gospel, you better believe that you and I do. You better believe that somewhere, some way, you came in here out of whack with the gospel. Feeling like I do when I go see, where is he? Kevin Turner. I walk into his office like this because something's jacked up in my back and I am out of whack. That's what Paul is saying. That's the imagery he's saying. Peter, you're out of line. You're, you're out of line with the gospel. You're walking like this, Peter. I go into the office walking like this and I come out like that because Kevin fixed me. <laughs> he gets me back in shape. He gets me back in line. That's the only thing that, the gospel is the only thing that can do, you, do that for you. You and I come in those doors or wherever and we're all out of whack somewhere and it's only the gospel that can straighten you back up. It's the Word of God. It's the preached Word of God and the read Word of God and the studied Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can straighten you guys back up again. We need the gospel. The gospel is what corrects us. And no matter if you're Peter or Paul or Kenny or Jason or Joe or whoever you are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I need the gospel's correction on a day-by-day basis. Here's a question I have. In the same way that Peter got out of whack with the gospel, thank God he had a Paul to bring him back in line. Who's your Paul? Who knows enough about what's going in your life and loves you enough that can get up in your face once in a while and be like, dude, you're out of step with the gospel, man. You've forgotten who Jesus is. And you've forgotten about the life that he's empowered you to live. You're out of step. You're you're crooked again. Let me help you get back straight. Who's your Paul? Do you have a brother or a sister? Is your spouse doing that? Husbands, we have to do that for our wives. Wives for our husbands. Singles, you have to do that for me. I have to do that for you. A friend, a brother, a sister, somebody that knows enough, like what's really going on, not what you present at church on a Sunday morning, but what's really going on in your day-to-day life. Does anybody know that about you? Because if you're a Christian, you need a Paul in your life that's going to... Get you back straight with the gospel. You're not going to do that for yourself. We need Paul's, like Peter needed, in our lives. Paul is saying, listen, there's no other gospel. There's no other gospel. The gospel has the authority to unite us, and the gospel has the authority to correct us. Stand firm in your faith in the gospel and in the Savior that it points you to. Don't leave him. I began telling you the story about William Wilberforce, and the band can come up now. For 18 long, hard years, he fought for the abolition of the slave trade. And in 1807, the Slave Trade Act was finally passed. 18 years. 
Now, things did not change in an instant. There was still many, many battles to fight. There were still years of racism that lie ahead. We're still fighting it today. But a major victory was won on that day when that bill was passed. A major victory. Friends, the battle for your freedom was decisively won the moment that Jesus Christ took his first breath when he rose again from the dead. That sealed it for you and me. Your victory from sin and from Satan and from death and from hell is totally won by Christ. The battle is over. But we fight on. We fight to believe what he has accomplished for us. And we stand firm in his gospel because there's no other message, because there's no other Savior like him. So this week, when you are tempted to be lured away from this truth, stand firm. Trust in Christ. Cry out to Him and ask Him once again to set you free from whatever it is that tempts you to leave Him. And you will find Him to be a sufficient and loving and gentle and powerful Savior that's going to keep you until the day that you see Him face to face. Let's pray. Jesus, if we have you, we have all that we need. If we don't have you, we've got nothing. We together declare our faith in your keeping power in our lives. If you don't keep us, Lord, we are goners. But with your powerful hand holding us, guiding us, your spirit leading us, your word teaching us, your gospel correcting us, the fellowship of the saints helping us, we will surely reach the shores of heaven on which we will praise you and worship you forever and ever. In your name we pray, amen.